We are familiar with the power of children in marketing campaigns, especially in the context of raising funds for children's hospitals or finding cures for childhood diseases. An example of this dates back to the mid-20th century when American medical philanthropies like the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis and its fundraising arm, the March of Dimes, helped the rapid growth of an infrastructure for virus research. And after the Salk polio vaccine in 1955, that infrastructure was refocused on the hunt for a cancer virus and for a cancer vaccine. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Associate Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with the author of a Medicine and Society article on the history of cancer vaccine research. The article is published in CMAJ. Dr. Robin Scheffler is a historian of biological and biomedical sciences and associate professor in the Science, Technology, and Society program at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Also, Dr. Scheffler just published a book called A Contagious Cause, The American Hunt for Cancer Viruses and the Rise of Molecular Medicine. And we're thrilled to be partnering with the New Books Network for this episode. NBN connects scholars to book authors, and it publishes current book reviews in the form of a podcast. Today's podcast interview will also be published on the New Books Network. You can check out the New Books Network by clicking on the link in this episode's description. Without any further delay, I'd like to welcome Dr. Scheffler, who's joining me from Boston. Hi, Robin. Hello. I'm happy to be here. So, Robin, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in the story of cancer virus research? I had started to look at the general rise of molecular medicine in America in the 1950s and 1960s. And one day I was reading about the history of cancer virus research, which is a very important uh, topic in the rise of molecular biology overall, not just molecular medicine. And I found something that I was very surprised by. I found accounts of parents writing to the National Cancer Institute in 1961 concerned that there was an outbreak of infectious leukemia in the uh, Chicago suburb of Niles, Illinois. And I was completely blown away by this. I hadn't thought of cancer as an infectious disease, but the citizens of Niles and many other uh, towns across the United States began to assemble against uh, cancer as if it were an epidemic they had to control. They passed laws in order to to regulate the reporting of the disease. Uh, and something I was really struck by once I started reading more about the Niles episode was that members of the uh, public who survived the epidemic were unwilling to even be photographed with their face towards the camera for fear of being stigmatized as infectious cancer carriers. And as I read about this, it seemed totally alien to cancer, but it reminded me, of course, of the accounts of polio outbreaks that had dominated American media coverage in the 1950s. And so I was left with the paradox. Why was it that Americans were willing to talk about cancer as an infectious disease when it inspired so much fear? And I began to understand that within the frame of the 1950s and the 1960s, talking about infectious disease also contained a lot of optimism. And that was the optimism that propelled the National Cancer Institute into a leading role in the search for a cancer vaccine. And as I found out later, 
uh, sort of supported the molecular discoveries that originally come into the history of cancer viruses interested in. Robin, can we go back for a second? I want I want to turn back to the question of Niles. Yes. Um, you know, you mentioned that it suddenly it, it sort of became possible uh, for people to imagine that a cancer virus, and not just medical experts, but actually people in the community started to think that maybe leukemia, childhood leukemia, was being caused by a cancer virus. Could you walk us through what made that framework possible in the first place? So one of the things that I had to think a great deal about as I was working on my book was this deeper association between the idea of contagious disease and the idea of cancer. And this is something that today any public health official or doctor will tell you, cancer isn't contagious in the way that we think about other contagious diseases. Uh, doctors throughout the 20th century reminded worried patients that they worked on wards with uh, cancer uh, victims all the time without falling sick themselves. However, for the population at large, uh, confronting the rise of germ theory and then the rise of cancer as public health problems, it seemed very reasonable to put the two ideas together. And by the 1940s, within this framework, the public was also beginning to digest the fact that numerous leukemia viruses were being discovered in mice and rodents and other animals. And many people felt it was only a matter of time until a leukemia virus was discovered in human beings. So you see this, uh, this merger uh, for the citizens of Niles and cancer research as a whole between this growing faith that animal models of cancer indicate there is a cancer virus for something like leukemia, along with this broad reservoir of popular belief that cancer could be a contagious disease. So where did you come up with the, the reservoir for the popular belief? Was this in like popular magazines or what was the way that the average person on the street started to, started to think about a cancer virus? Mm, yes. So the history of medicine is often dominated by what's written in medical journals or what's said by doctors. And a large portion of the research I conducted for this uh, book that I've just put out was trying to get a sense of how a layperson would have thought about cancer. Uh, I looked at popular uh, magazine articles and newspaper uh, collections that sort of carried different accounts. One of my very productive sources was digging around in the papers of cancer researchers uh, and seeing what letters members of the public had sent them. And if you look at those archives from uh, famous cancer virus researchers like Peyton Rouse, uh, who gets a Nobel Prize in 1966 for the first discovery of a, a, a tumor virus in chickens, you'll see that throughout his career, for example, people write to him all the time asking very practical questions uh, in response to reports of his work regarding whether or not they can get uh, catch cancer, as it were. Uh, they're concerned that cancer is in the soil of their homes. They're concerned that they can transmit cancer while having sex. Uh, in one case, a lawyer uh, writes to Peyton Rouse saying, my mother-in-law has died of a long illness, which was a, a euphemism for cancer, and my wife wants to throw out the mattress because uh, that she laid upon because she feels that cancer microbes lurk within the mattress. Uh, and the, this lawyer continues, I think that's absurd, and I want you to confirm to me that any microbes in the ma mattress would have died a long time ago. Uh, in the meantime, we're letting our maid use the mattress. And so this is really a very different portrait of cancer and contagion than you see in, in medicine as a whole, where everyday people were scared and fearful of the idea that cancer could be contagious. But 
there's also a certain element of pragmatism. And these uh, episodes and others like them pop up again and again and again when you look at the letters written to researchers or reports of how people uh, were reacting to cancer that pop appear in the popular press. I guess that sort of makes me wonder um, how people communicated with authorities at mm -hmm. that time. And I, I can't recall, but in your book, you don't mention things like FDR and, and fireside chats and, and the like. But I'm wondering if like the foundation for infantile paralysis, which uh, which plays a big role in, in your book and mm -hmm. in the development of cancer research, if the link, the political link between FDR as a character and and the polio element and um, and the communication with the general public plays any part at all in, in, in moving the story along. I think the, the really important connection between polio and, and cancer research, and in particular cancer virus research, is introducing this idea of hope into what medical research can accomplish against disease. And that may be a, a strange thing to say, but so much of the early 20th century uh, public education efforts around cancer were actually dedicated to suppressing public enthusiasm for finding a cure because the uh, oncologists and doctors who were uh, in charge of that effort were worried about public backlash if they overpromised. Uh, and this was sort of a tone of, of, of medical restraint that sort of encouraged people not to expect too much of research occurring in the laboratory. And that's also where polio started under FDR. Uh, and when FDR sort of began to raise money for polio, he encountered a problem uh, very quickly, which was this problem of expectation. Can you promise to a cure for polio or can you just collect money on the promise of offering uh, better treatment? And in 1938, uh, this sort of reaches a crisis point for uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, fundraising efforts because his personal charisma is no longer enough to solicit donations. And they need to find a different basis for seeking to justify the fight against polio. And that's when they begin to talk seriously about the idea of identifying all the strains of the polio virus and developing a vaccine. And that sort of sets in motion the campaign that leads to the Salk vaccine uh, about 20 years later. And even within the polio community, this was a very controversial move. The transition from studying a virus for the sake of simply knowing more about it versus studying a virus for the sake of developing a, a cure. And the polio uh, campaign, uh, which begins to sort of fold in these images of vulnerable children and medical research that we're so familiar with today, plays a pivotal role in encouraging the public to think of laboratory science as a means of addressing uh, dread disease. I wanted to ask you this question as I was reading your book. Is this reflecting a broader concern at the time that we see in, say, the Polanyi-Bernal debates, just the question of academic freedom versus programmed science? Is this sort of part and parcel of the same set of problems that's getting worked out in both an academic domain and also in a public domain? Uh, absolutely. For us today, we think of biomedical research as a huge field of endeavor. Uh, we're very accustomed to thinking of it as something that charities and uh, state organizations uh, should support. And we take it for granted that although we might provide that money, uh, we can't necessarily try to direct that research too much. But as you alluded to with the uh, Michael Polanyi, J.D. Bernal debates, this question of whether or not you could plan or direct science was fiercely controversial uh, in the 1930s into the 1950s. 
And these debates over how to use uh, research to confront the problems of disease were front and center in sort of setting those contours. And that's sort of shaped how we talk about a lot of the history of disease uh, research. And in particular, uh, we often forget that someone like Jonas Salk, who was involved in the Salk vaccine in 1955, we remember him as a hero. Uh, but for many of his contemporaries, uh, he was a controversial figure because he was willing to work in a more regimented and vaccine-oriented pattern of research, which was seen as being insufficiently scientific, uh, as opposed to other vaccine researchers that the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis recruited, who, uh, in the words of one vaccine researcher, were interested in studying the virus, not vaccinating against it. Now, you know, you introduce another interesting character who comes into the this, uh, this story around this time, Mary Lasker, mm -hmm. um, and how she played this massive role in shaping cancer research in the United States, and indeed how people came to think about cancer more broadly. Can you tell us why Mary Lasker is so important to your story? Yes. So cancer specialists who were largely surgeons coming into after, after the Second World War did not see a, 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 an important role for research. Uh, the message that they were promoting to the public uh, was a message of early detection. Uh, if you could sort of come into your surgeon early enough, you could have an operation that would remove uh, you know, a tumor before it could spread too far. And this is a model that places a great deal of emphasis on clinical skill but ideas such as chemotherapy or vaccination against cancer don't have a role to play. And that's reflected in the relatively modest role that uh, research plays in the agenda of the American Cancer Society and indeed in the National Cancer Institute after it's established in 1938. But about 20 years after that, in 1958, the National Cancer Institute is well on its way to becoming the single largest supporter of biomedical research against cancer anywhere in the world, which is a position that it holds to this day. And I began to sort of try to understand the developments of that intervening generation. And I assumed that there was going to be a change in opinion among the people who were the doctors and scientists offering advice to the National Cancer Institute. And I was sort of going through papers and congressional testimony, waiting for a moment when that would happen. And I didn't find that moment. What I did find, or who I did find, was Mary Lasker. And Mary Lasker, to me, is one of these fascinating characters, not only for what she does, but for the things she reveals about the politics of health and research in the United States right after the Second World War. Uh, she was born in 1900 in Wisconsin, and she moves uh, to New York. She gets a degree at Radcliffe, and then she studies in Oxford. She returns to New York and uh, becomes an art dealer and a textile designer. And she meets Albert Lasker in 1940. And at this point, Mary Lasker is what uh, I would call a New Deal liberal. She's a very enthusiastic backer of FDR. She wants to see some type of national health insurance passed in the United States. Uh, she backs access to birth control and contraception. And Albert Lasker is a moderate Republican. So they're a very political couple, even though they have different views. And Mary Lasker really dedicates her energy at first towards advocacy for national health insurance. But in 1948, that comes up short. She and the coalition that she's a member of are unable to sort of get the United States to implement national health insurance. And what I find so interesting about Mary Lasker in this moment is what she does next. Many campaigners for national health insurance continued to press the United States to sort of expand access to health care. 
But Mary Lasker is excited by a different idea that had been growing in her mind during the 1940s, which is that research could provide a way of addressing the threats posed by disease, especially cancer. And this is where a comment that her husband, Albert Lasker, makes in her, her recollection has an enduring effect, which is the power of government money. And she decides not only that research is an important thing to use against cancer, but that government funding against uh, for research will be much vaster than any level of private fundraising that an organization such as the American Cancer Society can muster. And so as her campaign for national health insurance sort of hits a, hits a brick wall, she instead diverts her political energies and her considerable resources, uh, because uh, at this point she's relatively wealthy, thanks in part to the fact that uh, Albert Lasker is a, an advertising executive who does a lot of, uh, has, has a Lucky Strike cigarette account, which is one of history's ironies. So she takes her, her energy and her, her money and she begins to focus on this plan to increase uh, federal support for cancer research as a whole. And I spent a lot of time uh, at Columbia University in her papers. And the fascinating thing here is that you get to see somebody who is an outsider to Washington begin to learn the machinery of how uh, the budget works, how policymaking works, and to figure out where she can sort of apply her leverage, because she knows that she's never going to have the power of the doctor's lobby. Uh, the American Medical Association sort of has doctors in every district of the United States, so they're able to mobilize against legislation, uh, such as legislation to set up a national health insurance plan. But Mary Lasker figures out that that's not true of the budget process. The people who control how much money goes into the budget of, say, the National Cancer Institute are limited to a few powerful Democratic committee members for most of sort of the time between 1946 and 19, uh, almost up until the end of the Cold War. And Mary Lasker, in consultation with her personal lobbyist and several sympathetic legislatures, figures out that the way to increase money for cancer research is through understanding the fine machinery of the appropriations process. And she begins to orchestrate this package of congressional pressure, expert testimony, and sort of citizen lobbying that uh, quintuples uh, the budget of the National Cancer Institute starting in the 1950s. But somehow she she's driving, it seems in your narrative, that she's driving research toward cellular mechanisms versus uh, a more environmental approach to cancer. It seems like she was pushing to understand the molecular basis of cancer. Is that correct? The important field of research that Mary Lasker takes for her campaign to increase funding at uh, the federal level for cancer research is chemotherapy. Uh, and chemotherapy had been an approach to cancer which had been uh, proposed at several points in the late 19th and early 20th century but really had never been effective. And the model of chemotherapy, once again, falls very far away from the preferred surgical or radiological treatments for cancer that are uh, the most endorsed in the 1930s. So chemotherapy research is sort of on the fringes of cancer research as a whole. But what chemotherapy offers someone like Lasker is a model of how to approach cancer that's very closely patterned on the recent success of antibiotics. And the idea of developing a series of treatments that will do for cancer what antibiotics did for infectious disease is a very powerful idea. 
it's an idea embraced by a researcher at the uh, Boston Children's Hospital named uh, Sidney Farber. Uh, and Sidney Farber, in, providentially for Alaska in 1948, begins to try a series of chemotherapy compounds against leukemia in children that appear to produce some striking temporary uh, remissions. And so this is a way of talking about cancer, which seems very open to federal investment, because it is sort of a, a laboratory type issue of how do you synthesize and test uh, you know, thousands or possibly hundreds of thousands of potential chemotherapy compounds, and coupled with this model that it might be possible to have a magic bullet against cancer. And so Lasker's move towards the sort of laboratory model of cancer as opposed to the environmental model of cancer is partially opportunistic, but it also reflects her sense, I believe, of the political terrain that she confronts, where it's, it is better to fight cancer in the laboratory than try to fight it uh, in society, either through changing the healthcare system or through getting into very controversial environmental cancer issues, such as the relate, link between cancer and production in, in industry, sort of chemical carcinogenesis, uh, or the role between atmospheric, uh, the relationship between atmospheric nuclear testing uh, and the potential risk of leukemia. So Lasker is both very politically astute in where she decides to focus her energy, but the choices that she makes also reflect, you know, sort of deep in one way of thinking about cancer at the expense of others. So it sounds from the narrative you're giving us now that we see a, a confluence in the mid-50s between a number of things that might not even have been predictable. You have this massive growth of research in polio vaccine. You, you have a trend towards studying chemotherapy. And then suddenly you have this group of, of a massive group of researchers and infrastructures that is, that's ready to be redeployed from infectious diseases toward cancer or perhaps a hybrid of infectious disease and cancers. So the history of, of medicine, the history of public health has a strong component of borrowing. And, you know, what if, if did something that works over here, will it work for this new problem? And by the 1950s, cancer is the most feared disease in the United States. And the public is looking for new ways and new models to fight the disease. And the success uh, of campaigns against infectious disease, uh, such as antibiotics, but also uh, uh, sort of vaccination and the very famous success of the polio vaccine, is one set of models that people ask themselves, could this be applied to cancer? And I think it's a very important bridge that the polio vaccine was so tied up with this idea of protecting vulnerable children. And many of the most promising advances in confronting cancer in the 1950s centered on uh, leukemia, which gained a reputation as a children's cancer. So it's not only a set of methods, but also the, the character is the same. The idea that we need to do everything we can to protect these children that are gravely at risk of any number of diseases. Mm. And this model seems to be in place for 15 or close to 20 years, isn't it? It's a time of... Uh, you know, the, the American economy is expanding, so there are a lot of resources. Uh, it's the, you know, the, the generation of the baby boom, so American society is uniquely concerned with the health and well-being of all these children who were born after the, the Second World War. 
And it's a time of immense excitement and hope. If you think about the medical breakthroughs and discoveries that happened in the 1950s and early 60s, there's a sense that, you know, it, in, in vaccination, in antibiotics, uh, in molecular biology, that this is all, you know, moving towards something. Mm -hmm. And there's also a lot of enthusiasm for new ways of planning research. And that all comes together uh, in the case of the cancer vaccine hunt uh, at the National Cancer Institute through something called the Special Virus Leukemia Program, which is an effort to take the insights of the polio vaccine development uh, sort of project, which in, in many of the advisors to the program were themselves former polio researchers, and combine that with new methods of military planning that were also being used to meet the national crisis of the Cold War and things such as missile production. And these two things would be blended together to not only eventually produce a leukemia vaccine, but the idea was to produce a leukemia vaccine as quickly as possible. And the, uh, the architect of this program uh, addresses a conference of leukemia researchers in 1965 and reminds them that I think it's 50 children had uh, you know, fallen ill uh, in the two-day period of the conference and this was happening, you know, every two days. So it's this idea of a ticking clock that needs to be urgently addressed. And the best way of addressing it is through vaccination coupled with these new methods of planning. But once it becomes a matter of planning, it's no longer a strictly medical problem. It's an infrastructure and organization problem. And the people who are working with this idea see the challenge not as finding a cancer virus, but of devoting enough uh, sufficient resources. And this is sort of the nucleus of uh, the planning approaches that are sort of held forth at the beginning of the war on cancer uh, writ large in, the, in 1971 as a new model for sort of the government's moonshot against cancer. Now, you mentioned a pivot at some point, a pivot between virus research and oncogene research. And, and could you tell us a little bit about that? We often think of the history of medical research as sort of getting from one success to another. But another very important part of medical research is dealing with frustration. And one of the most notable things about the sort of burst of enthusiasm uh, for finding a cancer virus in the 1960s is that it, it doesn't produce evidence of a human cancer virus on its own terms, despite having millions of dollars to devote to this search and having sort of looked everywhere they possibly could, They're deploying teams of researchers around the world uh, to look for candidate human cancer viruses. And so they get all the resources they need to conduct the search. But by the late 1960s, they're not finding what they thought they would find. At that point, they could have concluded they were wrong. But because of the administrative momentum behind this program, Instead, the architects who were working on this search became much more uh, creative and ambitious in thinking about the molecular mechanism of how cancer might be caused. And so this is a moment where the public health imperative to develop a vaccine intersects with a parallel body of developments in molecular biology. Molecular biology had not been concerned with curing cancer, but suddenly the National Cancer Institute is looking to molecular biology for an account of how viruses could cause cancer in humans without leaving the traditional signs of viral infection that people working in virology and immunology would expect to find in order to associate a virus with cancer. 
And this produces a theory from, from Robert Huebner and George Tadero in 1968-1969 called the viral oncogene theory. And that theory said that the reason why the National Cancer Institute had failed to observe evidence of viral infection in human cancer was due to the fact that when a, this hypothetical cancer virus infected a cell, it inserted an oncogene into the cell in a manner similar to what bacteriophage uh, did with E. coli bacteria that had, uh, molecular biology had recently studied. And that oncogene remained in a cell for several generations before activating through some unknown mechanism and causing cancer. And so this was a way of still insisting on the viral roots of cancer without necessarily allowing or, or well, accommodating the fact that no evidence of viruses could be found in human cancer. And of course, this seems like special pleading, uh, sort of making up a convenient mechanism in order to justify inconvenient experimental results. But the remarkable thing was that these viruses that had been flagged as candidates uh, were called retroviruses or RNA tumor viruses. In 1968, there was no known mechanism by which RNA could alter the DNA of cells. But in 1970, there's the discovery of reverse transcriptase, which is an enzyme that allows RNA to edit DNA. And the National Cancer Institute takes this as a sort of substantial validation of their sort of forward-looking way of planning research and anticipating results instead of waiting on laboratory results. So it seems like, as you describe it, if we could go back to the the hardcore, you know, planning ver versus serendipity view of of discovery or, or knowledge growth, it's really neither. It seems to be both and in a way, both woven together. Um, could you tell me how long does the war on cancer actually go on for? Uh, we still may be uh, in it. I mean, in terms of the the sort of the, the legacy of the war on cancer and its its most aggressive push generally expires in the early 1980s. So it really lasts, you know, the, the core of the war on cancer uh, is between the end of 1971 and the beginning of 1982. But the real moment of optimism uh, is has expired by roughly 1978, when the former director of the Food and Drug Administration begins to call it a medical Vietnam. So okay. it's really, a, it's a very compressed moment of time in the early 1970s, where there's a huge amount of optimism and a huge amount of money funneled into new ways of understanding cancer in the laboratory. And it just so happens that viral oncogenes are one of the most promising research targets for that money to follow, which is why in the 1970s, you have a series of major breakthroughs in molecular biology, all closely tied to this earlier effort to find a cancer vaccine. So what happens to cancer viruses after the war on cancer? So much of this story and what I found compelling about it centers on these cycles of boom and bust. So uh, the polio vaccine produces a body of researchers that flow into cancer uh, virology and the optimism that it might be possible to develop a cancer vaccine in the 1960s and 1970s. And some of those researchers remain with cancer viruses after those viruses are sort of used to start hunting for cellular oncogenes, which are genetic agents of cancer rather than viral agents of cancer. And that's closely tied to work supported by the National Cancer Institute, carried out by uh, J. Michael Bishop and Howard Varmus in San Francisco, in the University of California, San Francisco in 1975 and 1976. 
So ironically, there's one path where a lot of these retrovirus researchers that are supported by the war on cancer uh, go on to become the architects of our, a large part of our molecular genetic understanding of cancer. Uh, another group of these researchers uh, makes a hop to another disease. The term retrovirus may be familiar to some of your listeners. In the most notorious retrovirus that most of us are aware of today is uh, HIV. And so in the early 1980s, when people are trying to understand what AIDS is and you know whether, what causes it, uh, people have noticed that there's a very rapid convergence on understanding HIV as the cause of AIDS. And then that's coupled, of course, with a new campaign uh, to develop antiretroviral drugs or to even develop an, an, an AIDS vaccine. And many of the characters who play a role in retrovirus research during the war on cancer then move from cancer viruses to HIV AIDS research. And of course, the one pathway that I haven't mentioned here is an actual cancer vaccine. And today we have vaccines against the hepatitis B virus and the human papillomavirus, which taken together, uh, if, you know, if you were to vaccinate everybody in the world, you could prevent as many as one out of every six cases of cancer from occurring. So it's not a full cancer vaccine, but it's definitely a, a major step forward. And one of the ironies of this story is that as the war on cancer is winding down, that's the moment in which the first suggestions that there are human cancer viruses uh, begin to emerge but they generally deal with cancers that are outside of the frame of the United States. So that's a nice way to bring us around to a conclusion of this, this interview. And I'm just wondering if you have thoughts on how America's hopes for technological pathways to better health have changed over the past half century. It's, it's a question I think about a lot. And of course, studying the history of cancer research or studying cancer, it can be easy to get frustrated and to get a bit cynical whenever anyone says they have a new candidate cure for cancer on the horizon. And the most important thing that I've drawn from my work is that it's important how we study cancer and the people who are doing the work uh, of both researching and treating the disease. But it also really matters for us as a society how we think about cancer and other diseases, the types of problem we make it into. And that's a very, the danger here is that if you define a cancer as say a technological problem or a scientific problem, it makes it harder to see it as a different type of problem, as a social problem or as an environmental problem. And the concern I have based on the, the work that I've done on cancer viruses is that uh, Americans are unfortunately very prone to substitute technological puzzles that are very complicated uh, for possibly uh, you know, intellectually easier but politically more difficult uh, social interventions. So in the case of all of this energy that's expended on cancer virus research in the 1960s and 1970s and the idea of developing a cancer vaccine, I, you know, the single most effective thing that happens from a public health perspective against cancer during those decades and the decades following is uh, reducing the number of Americans smoking cigarettes far and away. Uh, and that's the type of issue that laboratory science is never quite able to understand. In the same way, it doesn't really matter what the leading technological breakthrough is uh, for treating cancer if it's something that the healthcare system can't make available to the population as a whole. And these are all questions that figures on the edge of the war on cancer are often asking very forcefully, but as long as 
uh, sort of a molecular biological or technological approach to cancer predominates, it's hard for them to make their questions and concerns legible for how the government deals with cancer. So basically, we see how thinking about cancer viruses or something as, as specialized as molecular biology can become an occasion to think more broadly about medicine and uh, society as a whole and, and yes. politics. Yeah, the frames that we place around disease have immense implications for how we deal with disease. Well, Robin, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today about your work. Very thought-provoking. Uh, and I really appreciate the time you've taken to talk to our listeners. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed talking with you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I've been speaking with Dr. Robin Scheffler, historian of biological and biomedical science and associate professor in the Science, Technology, and Society program at MIT in Cambridge, Massachusetts. His book is called A Contagious Cause, The American Hunt for Cancer Viruses and the Rise of Molecular Medicine. To read the Medicine and Society article he wrote, visit cmaj.ca. And don't forget to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on SoundCloud or a podcast app. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating. And check out the New Books Network, where this podcast episode will also be published. I'm Dr. Dorian Deschauer, Associate Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>